Welcome everyone to Courageous Conversations podcast number six and today our special guest is Kylie Davis who a lot of you would know from her Core Logic days. She has now just launched her brand new business called Real Content. Welcome Kylie. Thanks Anne. Thank you. So I'd love to go back to the beginning if we can, talk a little bit about how you started. I understand you were a journo straight out of school. Yeah, so I um, did my cadetship at the Australian in the Melbourne office of right. the Oz, yep. and I remember really clearly the day I had to apply, they only took one cadet a year in the Melbourne Bureau, Wow! and I got the phone call from the editor to say that I had been selected the same morning that I got a phone call from RMIT saying I'd been accepted into RMIT's journalism school, which oh, wow. was also brand new. Steve Foley, who was the editor, said to me, so I guess you've got a choice. You can choose to study to be a journalist or you can become a journalist. And I thought, wow, that's pretty straightforward. Like, Thank you very much. I'll have the job. <laughs> yeah, I think I've been told. Yeah. Fantastic. And so how long were you? How long were you a journo? Yeah, so I was a cadet. So the cadetship was a year sort of being a copy person, which was pretty much picking up dry cleaning and holding tape recorders and doing tats lotto for various journalists around the and fixing awesome. the photocopier. Um, and then you, we had a three-year cadetship. So it was four years as a cadet. And, uh, and during that time, I worked in the Canberra bureaus in for six months covering federal politics. Right. I was there during Paul Keating's failed coup over Bob Hawke. Oh, that, that was, would have been an that interesting time. <laughs> I'm, I'm dating myself. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, and I covered a lot of really sort of random stuff too. I had a time on investing in people, which was the people management section when that was all starting to come out. And then I also did time on engineering, which was where I got to see a really intelligent, clever profession outside journalism that believed in changing the world. And that that really influenced me because I was like, wow, you know, there are some clever people out there doing amazing stuff around technology and building things that are not just reporting on stuff, they're actually building things. And that was really influential. So that informs your passion for prop tech, but we'll come back to that. We will come back to that. When did you leave when did you leave journalism? So I left journalism. So the Australian nationally took on a lot of cadets every year. Uh, they only took one in Melbourne, but in Sydney I think they had sort of 20 or 25. I ended up leaving as a D-grade reporter. So what happened is that basically I met my partner, uh, and who's now my husband, Mark. He was working down in Melbourne for the Sunday Herald Sun, which was a paper that Murdoch had set up. Took a redundancy from that ended up going overseas and I was going to join him but he's English by birth and he basically got over there and went oh I remember why I immigrated to Australia yeah, so I'm coming, coming home back. I'm coming home just purely and so he ended up he couldn't go back to news in Melbourne but he was able to go back to news in Sydney so he pulled a few strings because he was quite senior and I got transferred up to Sydney and that's right. how I ended up in Sydney from Melbourne okay so um and from there but we had gone from a period where we had been you know madly in love but in different countries and different states because while I was in Canberra he was in Melbourne then we were he was overseas and suddenly we were sitting at desks opposite each other Oops. and going to on to work on the bus together and coming home together and after about sort of three months of this yes. I remember us sitting up in bed on Saturday morning when one of you goes I can't stand this one of us has got to go and iron more than you so you've got to leave <laughs> so that's um and so I ended up um how did you feel about that I was like yes yeah great yes um, and so during that time when I had been working on the management section and on the engineering section, it was clear that they were jobs that no one really wanted to do, but I was really interested and stimulated in the section. And so on the day that I resigned, a lot of other cadets also resigned because there was a lot going on inside news at the time. And I remember the editor looking at me and going, oh, but like, bloody hell, another one's resigned. Like, oh. And he said, and what do you do again? Yeah. And I said, well, I fill these sections every week at the moment. And he goes, well, who's going to do that when you're gone? And without 
really thinking. I said, well, I'll do it. I'll freelance it back to you. And he said, right, how much will you charge me for that? And I hadn't actually thought that far ahead as part of this conversation, but my salary was $500 a week and I knew that those two jobs took me two days a week to do. Right. And so I said, oh, $500 a week. And he was like, all right. And I thought, oh, shit, I should have asked for more money. Thinking on your feet so quickly, yeah, nice job, yeah. And I had a little uh, part time, so it's a bit of history repeating because I had a little part time gig uh, um, set up as well. And so between the two of them, I'd sort of doubled my salary and was only working sort of four days a week. So, yeah, nice one. Yeah, that was. That, that was the start of it all. And where did that lead you to? I freelanced sort of for a while and wanted to get – I always wanted to be an editor. Um, I really wanted to have my own newspaper. And while I was freelancing, I got pregnant and I had a baby and Mark was doing really long hours and working, doing the full editor stint, career stint. And I wanted my own newspaper, but it was pretty clear that I couldn't go back to news to have that. And mm-hmm. it was um, the beginning of the, the, the recession of the 90s. Mark came home from a, a meeting with like a little A4 newspaper that he'd picked up from like Lane Cove, which was mm-hmm. called the Village Observer. And it was just A4, it was just like desktop publishing. It was the beginning of the desktop publishing revolution. And he came home and he said, well, you want to do a newspaper? Why don't you do one of these? Do one of these, you know, because we lived in Balmain and I knew I loved Balmain, but I couldn't find any local news about it. I basically stuck Samo, Sam, my baby, um, in a pusher and walked up and down the street and started talking to businesses and said, look, I used to be a journalist at The Australian. I'm going to do a newspaper because there's not not enough news about Balmain. (laughs) And and this is my baby. And Belmain was a great, was a great village, yeah, and everyone is. knew everybody, and people is, and there wasn't a lot of babies around then either, so everyone sort of knew, had seen me up and down the street before, so everyone was like, well, good on you, you know, girly, off you yeah. go, and you know, you let us know when it started, and we'll see how we go. So yeah. that's kind of where it started in the front room at our tiny wee cottage in. In but Darling Street. Yeah, nice. And what was that newspaper called? <laughs> it was called The Village Voice. Right. So I named it after it was A4. It came out once a month. It covered Balmain and Roselle only. It had a 10,000 distribution when we did the first one. It was proudly parochial. If it didn't happen in Balmain, we did not care about it. And yep. we only covered local stories, local issues, local people. So Paddy McGuinness, who was a really well-known columnist for The Australian, lived in Balmain. He was one of my first mentors. He's now passed on, but he was enormously helpful and supportive and at the time in the newspaper industry to be a real newspaper you had to be tabloid at least and you had to come out weekly otherwise you weren't a newspaper Uh, I wasn't allowed into the newspaper industry association because I wasn't a proper newspaper and I spent five years pretty much lobbying them to say a newspaper is not the shape or the frequency it is whether it delivers genuine news to its community, whether it has a, yep. a definable audience and whether it defines. So I was one of the first, because this was all before the internet, I was yep. one of the first to say that this is what news is and to sort of really lobby for that. So it was a big day when I got accepted into that. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> well done. <laughs> but, but by the end I had three papers and I had a team of about 15 staff. Wow. Um, I had my own distribution network. Not still at home, I hope, by that stage. No, no, I had an office by then. I had an an office. I trained up some really good journalists who uh, went on to work at places like Reuters in New York. Wow. um, Certainly into Fairfax and News and even overseas to, you know, to Murdoch's papers overseas. So I was really quite proud of my, my team. Yeah, totally. And what happened with that newspaper? I sold it after 10 years. I had three papers in the end and I sold it to my printers 
who um, had wanted me to keep expanding. But right. having a monthly paper, I had a lot of staff. It was a, it was over a million dollars in business every year. But it was very – I was – Mark was still travelling for work uh, and I had two kids by then. And so for me – the growth and the benefit of the business was the more people I could have employed doing work that I thought was valuable and the more sort of brain space they gave me, that was how I was running it. But the model with that was kind of the first year I launched a new publication, it would it would not make money. The second year it would break even and the third year it would, it would start to be profitable. So I had three papers, which kind of takes you up to almost about 10 years. My ambition was to big for it for the funding for the resourcing and the funding I had so I said to my printers well you guys get a benefit every time I expand how about you put your money where your mouth is and buy me out so they did and then about six months after that they got bought out by Rural Press oh wow yeah that was and that was a bit of a interesting (laughs) period in my life so I had a very short period working for Rural Press before they sold the paper and me as they said they packaged me off they were like we, oh, we so you, you worked with you worked for the printer after they bought you out uh, yeah I worked well the printers got bought by Royal Press what, which yeah. was a big um, country yes. newspaper country uh, yeah. company they did not want a city paper and certainly not one that wasn't broadsheet weekly that fit their box the CEO and I came to an arrangement that they would move us on to uh, I ended up at the courier group Ah, of so course the Wentworth Courier and all of those papers, I ended up as editor-in-chief over there looking after all of their group. Yeah, right. So, yeah. That's wow, a, that's an interesting way to get there. Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah. <laughs> and so from there? So from there, I ended up getting headhunted by Fairfax because I was one of the few journalists at the time. I was on a panel with um, Mark Scott at the industry con- So after getting finally accepted into the industry association, ended up speaking at their conference and uh, ended up in a bit of a debate with Mark Scott, who was editor-in-chief at the Sydney Morning Herald at the time. And over dinner, he said, well, you should come and work for us because we have some amazing journalists, but we don't have any journalists who know how the business makes money. Like we don't actually know who don't understand the commercial back end of the business. And you've basically built all these things up from scratch. So there's certainly parts of the Herald that we'd like to fix or do differently. Can you come and work for us there? So that's how I ended up at Fairfax for five years. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then? And from there, um, News Corp then reached out to me and said, well, the most broken bit of our business is real estate, so do you want to come and fix that? And that's, a, I think it was about a $20 million business or yeah, something. massive. And they said, so um, can you do what you've been doing, but can you do it over here? So I was like, yeah, okay. Okay, why Fine. not? Yeah. So it's been a while since you went for a job interview by the sound of it. You just got Yeah, I don't from, do yeah. I'm not a very good employee, I've no. decided. <laughs> <laughs> Ask my husband, he'll tell I, me. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I'm a terrible employee. Tim McKibben. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. For those that you don't know, Kylie is working a couple of days a week at uh, the Real Estate Institute of New South Wales, helping yeah. with a range of things there. So what, what motivated you to start your business, Real Content? So I finished up at CoreLogic in August, and I think for a while when I was at CoreLogic, I loved working at College. I, I had a had a fabulous job, and I loved the people I was working with, and the and just it was so clever yes, as a company. And is, and I yeah. never would have thought, as a journalist who genuinely hated maths and thought numbers were, I was allergic to numbers. I would never have thought that I would become so enamoured with data. Once I realised that actually data was just another way to find a story, that kind of was where I had this ah, moment, yeah, you know. Right. <laughs> Uh, when in leaving CoreLogic, I I kind of felt you know what I've I've now been ten years in my own business, I've been fifteen years back in corporate, 
I don't want to swing straight into the next corporate job. I'm kind yeah. of I'm kind of feel done. I, I I want to decide what I do myself again. And I think that's kind of the thing that's linked all of those different moves in my career. It was pretty obvious to me way back even at the Australian when I was a cadet. So many of us basically put our careers in the hands of the gods and hope that the opportunity, if we work really hard, that the opportunities will open up. And it became really obvious to me inside news back as a, you know, 19, 20-year-old, because I was really quite young, that no one was going to rescue me. There was no point waiting for some, you know, career knight to charge in on his horse and stick me on the back and ride off. Like there was no one was going to bequeath me the amazing opportunity to set up a newspaper or or do a magazine because yep. those, you know, those Ita Butros stories were kind of few and far between. Sure. There's a lot more journalists than there are Ita, Ita Butros or, you know, editors of Clio and all that, Lisa yep. Wilkinson, all those stories. So, sure. And so I thought, right, well, I just have to pull up my big girl's pants and do this myself. So and then also I wanted to have a baby and 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 none of these things seem to be congruent like they always seem to be all if you you have to choose chocolate or vanilla it's like but yeah. i really like neapolitan yeah like i'd like all the flavors i want all of that yeah <laughs> all the flavors so and that was why i thought well back when i was at, at news well i'll get a part-time i can't find a full-time job because no one seems to be hiring at the moment but i can find a part-time job and then maybe i can add on to that yeah and so when I was at CoreLogic and, and suddenly this sort of gift opened up of, right, well, I'm, I'm finishing up, it was, that's what I'll do. I'll go back to that. I'll, I'll do a little re- bit of everything. Yeah, reinvent myself again and find a couple of things that I am interested in to, to keep, keep the money ticking over while I yeah. build up again from so I've got more flexibility. And so obviously you've done it before. Was it easier this time because you knew you'd done it before? Absolutely. And I think, so I think the difference between someone who's worked for themselves versus someone who's always been in a corporate career, when you have your own business, and we see this all the time in real estate too, there's always a tipping point in your own business. And I I learned this in my early 20s, and it was a really painful lesson. So, you know, hats off to anyone who goes through this. But you realise that your business is actually a reflection of everything that you are and that you stand for mm-hmm. and so that the behavior that you walk that you turn on a blind eye to or the behavior that you walk past is is the stuff that you know yeah. prolificates and and grows and the life lessons that you need to learn when you have your own business will be thumped over you know you will be thumped on the head with them like a lump of 4b2 until you actually realize that the pain of trying to resist is actually greater than the pain of just doing the work that you don't want to do or that you're trying to avoid have you got an example i was always absolutely crap at numbers yeah and so i avoided any kind of accounting in my well no i didn't avoid it i had a bookkeeper and right. i completely implicitly trusted her yeah and then she left and i got another bookkeeper and she didn't send an invoice out for six months and i nice. didn't know she was creating them in the system so when i was looking i could see them but i couldn't work out why we weren't getting any money in the, and i just didn't have the systems and structure in place because i thought i didn't do that or i couldn't yep. do that yeah and learning that lesson was one of the most painful lessons ever because I, I sailed as close to the wind as I ever want to sail. But yeah. we were able to turn it around and um, and, it, and the lesson for that was, Kylie Davis, you're now going to learn about accounting. And, yeah. um, and I found myself a really good accountant who is now my best friend and she basically slapped me around the head until I, you know, got my brain around it. But my, my distribution thing, um, setting up the distribution for the Village Voice was the same. I got dumped and um, I had my sort of fourth or fifth edition dumped and I have I still to this day can remember how 
stressed I was. Dumped as in they didn't deliver it. No, they, they didn't just deliver it. They, like, we, we ended up finding it sort of weeks later oh, down the back oh, of a reserve somewhere. Gosh. And I had advertisers calling me. I and, bet. and I had like, you know, if we hadn't got that edition out, we would have gone under. We just had no, we couldn't invoice off it. We couldn't sure. do anything like that. But what that also taught me was that I had actually already built up a lot of goodwill. And so when I was honest with people and just said, I can't work out what's happened, the distribution company is telling me they've delivered it i know you haven't got it can you tell me where you are and we said so my girlfriend who was helping me at the time we literally got a map out of balmain and then we just called all our advertisers and said have you seen it like and my husband's going don't tell anyone you haven't been delivered yeah. don't tell. i was like everyone knows it's a small yeah. community everyone knows this thing hasn't gone out so we started to plot on the map like we had the yeah. pins on the map and um so when the distribution company was saying oh no 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 we've got it i was like well i have and we listed all the calls and we said like here's our evidence to show that it hasn't been delivered and so they ended up paying for a new print run that's a fantastic example of a courageous conversation right because your husband's <gasps> on one hand saying don't, don't do don't, it don't, 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 but on the yeah. other hand you know, that's He's not who you know. I love him. I love him, but he's not. That's not my heart. That's not, not true I, to me. I, yeah. That's what I was going to say. That's yeah. not authentic to you. No. And the amount of kudos you would have gotten from the people you were talking to, yes. they would have, you know, the level of trust that they would have built up as a result of that conversation would have been massive, I would yeah. have thought. Yeah. Well, I think everyone from that edition advertised with me from then on until they like they ch- their business changed for whatever yep. reason. So we had inside the Village Voice probably about 85 to 90% of our advertisers were ongoing long-term contracts. Yeah, right. So um yeah, it was a very it was a very popular paper by the Yeah, end. absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, just an important part of the local community, Fabric, right? Everybody yeah. valued it. Yeah. Yeah. So have you got any other examples of those courageous conversations that you have with either other people or sometimes they're just with yourself. When I was going from being a freelancer into this new newspaper and thinking that, okay, I think my direction's changing again, but I don't know what that looks like. Mm. I think being honest and open with yourself to say, I don't know what this looks like, but I'm prepared to explore the feelings that I've got around it. So I always know in my heart if something feels right or wrong. Right. And I know the challenge with that is often when it feels wrong, the immediate response is to try and move away from it because it's uncomfortable. Yeah. But if I can kind of stop and then lean into it a little bit and go, well, why does it feel wrong and what's res- like what's what's tingling or what's sort of setting me off and how do I really feel about that and start to kind of – I kind of feel like you often have a bit of a, a twisted ball of wool and you kind of just have to pull one little bit of it to start to untangle it to work out where, where your head's at. I had a uh, – when I was in this freelance – I was freelancing and I was building up some PR clients and then I ended up going down the village voice path. I had a young girl who was working for me a day – a couple of days a week, just a uni student, and I was thinking, oh, this is terrible. You know, I've just taken this girl on and I'm about to change – I'm about to pivot my whole business and I'm going to have to not use her anymore because she's got PR skills, not journalism skills. And and I really – I remember staying up all night, worried about the conversation I was going to have with her and I was pacing the floor in our tiny little home in Belmain. <laughs> and, and so the next morning I sort of said to her, look, you know – got to do it like just sit down let's have this conversation and and I told her what was going on she goes oh that's completely fine because you know I haven't actually been really enjoying this very much and um uh, and but this new thing sounds great and I'd love to do that because I really do want to do more journalism and so it was like oh my god (laughs) 
And I think to me that taught me that you should never, even though those conversations are scary and in, you can build them up in your own head based yeah. on what you're thinking, but you often just need to throw it out there and just see what comes up. And, yeah, so all of those conversations around letting people go or or pivoting or changing people's roles often I think you're supposed to be scared of them. Yeah. I think they're not supposed to necessarily be pleasant things to do, but I think the mark of the person is how you sort of man up and do it. Absolutely. And then be open to it. Yeah. Absolutely. And then it's remarkable how often they are very rarely as bad as what you think they're going to be, but then also the opportunities that come out of those conversations are usually quite interesting as well. Yeah. I mean, I remember at um, even at CoreLogic, so I was sitting on the other side of the table and I remember thinking to the, the um, people that were sitting off and I was thinking, oh, God, they're having such a terrible time. Like, oh, and I actually felt really sorry for them. I was like, look, it's all right. I've done this before. I've been on your side. We're like, don't worry about it. Just tell me what the package is. We'll, yeah, that's right. We'll sort this out. <laughs> let's talk about the numbers and let's move on. Yeah, totally. The new business, do you want to spend a a few minutes just telling us what the new business is, what that looks like? Yeah, so so Real Content is a subscription service that provides real estate agents with all of the content that they need to stay connected or build up relationships with new clients. So it's it's an evergreen list of, you know, stories. Stories. And uh, in the same way that you, you know, access photos through Shutterstock or iStock or um, it's literally, you know, all you can eat in terms of content. Different content. So people can pick and choose the stories that are relevant to them. Yeah, if you want to run a campaign to win investors, there's a whole pile of investor stories. If you're looking for – if you're wanting to – if you've got people that are in your database but you haven't touched base with them for a while and you or, or you think that they might be renovating or you've done some you know CMAs that haven't necessarily resulted in a sale yep. you can you can build all sorts of different campaigns off that yeah. of them Beautiful. so that's what we're so it's kind of a combination of journalism data technology all the all this it's the full circle Exactly. And to go back to the technology, PropTech, I know that you're passionate about PropTech and you've organised a few events in that space. What is it that fascinates you about that? Well, what fascinates me is, so I come from an industry media that has been completely broken and changed by disintermediation. And so I feel enormously privileged to now be inside the real estate industry, which is still to have this done to us. I know it feels like we've already had it done to us, but yeah, let me assure you, no. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and so if I – and and I spend a lot of time in media sort of, you know, waving my hand saying, look, it's coming, like things are changing, we need to change, we need to we need to be ahead of this. And, and it was very hard to make that happen inside mainstream media companies. Well, they wouldn't have believed it, that it was going to happen to the degree – that it did? No, did and, and here's the key lesson of that, is that at the time when they needed to be paying the most attention, they were making too much money out of the old model. Yes. And so I think, and so, I, and I see that we're... That's what happened with Kodak too, right? It's exactly, it's, yeah. it's like... It happens with everyone. so many. Yeah. It's, it, it's, the, it's the playbook. Yeah. It's like just when you really need to be looking at the adjacent business models, you sort of think you don't need to because you're absolutely creaming it with the way, because it's yeah. like a, it's like a plant before, a, before a flowering plant dies, it has this amazing season where it absolutely yeah, right. blossoms and yeah. then it withers and, and, and dies. So, nice um, so I think for me, the, the worry in real estate is, well, you know, we've just come through a really big season. So, and now yep. we're kind of moving down. So technology will only be as good as the people who are interpreting it and leading it 
and deciding what they want real estate experiences to be like. So if we don't, as an industry, get our brain around how we want to own the space yep. in terms of not defend the space, that's a very different thing. How do we? What do we think an amazing real estate experience looks like for buyers, sellers, renters and landlords? Yep. And how do we get back as an industry to the good old days of relationship and use the technology to be enabling those relationships as opposed to, you know, taking away those relationships yeah and so to me we're really at the perfect storm where the market is coming off or the market is off it's kind of man-made in that it's all around credit we're also in the middle of this it's not cyclical like it's not just kind of all the reserve bank will come out and reduce interest rates and we'll all be fine it'll all pick up again and at the same time there's an awful lot of this of technology coming through and disrupting and changing what we do and i think too and this is where i struggle with some agency go oh you know we don't want to change it's like is your job amazing at the moment? Do you really, like, I know you love selling property and you love dealing with people, but we're also in the middle of this perfect storm where the technology has promised us so much and for everything it's delivered, it's given us another 10 jobs to do. Yeah. And so it's we're right at the hardest part of it now. Yeah. But I see that what's coming is actually going to be easier if we've got the leadership and the skills and the clarity to drive towards that bright new future yeah right yeah that's really interesting because you're right there are so many people telling you all the reasons why the technology isn't good i'm not going to get rid of my trust account because my landlords won't understand it or you know the bank gives me a good deal on other things or how many landlords understand trust accounting i've got three investment properties i couldn't tell you anything about trust accounting it's just does the money go in my account and when can i spend it thank you very much Exactly. Put exactly. it in those terms, Timmy, and I'll be happy. Yeah, and I think that we do approach all of these things from, from our own very siloed perspective and we don't really think about how the experiences are changing in everything that we do. Mm. And as a result, you know, for me, I don't actually think it's technology driving change anymore. It's consumer expectations Absolutely. of what, yeah, um, yeah, what yeah. we can actually expect in all of the service delivery no matter what the business is. Yeah, but those consumer expectations have been changed because of the technology we've all got access to and so we're not going to real estate is not going to be this island of of you know (laughs) this oasis of oh well we just decided that wasn't going to happen I mean that's just not how it's going to play out so so I think that you know the courageous conversations we need to be having in real estate right now are around it is going to come back to relationships and so what do customer experiences and what do our relationships look like in a technological world yep. in this new world yep. and how and then what kind of what do we have to do in terms of looking after our clients looking after our own people and looking after ourselves as business owners yep. to execute this amazing experience yeah, because right. if we just keep focusing on the relationship and the experience then the technology will start to it'll make sense as to what we do but too many agencies at the moment think that a technical upgrade is, oh, well, I just got a new sales agent, so we're moving from RP data to price finder. Yeah. It's like, no. Yeah. Or, you know, we're going from console s- to rock end or yeah. whatever that is. Or know. a new CRM. Yeah. yeah. It's and not that, just that's right. not that's not it. It's not about the buttons or the or the computer program. It's about what does that let you do? What do you want to tell real estate agents just in closing? What do you want to tell them about technology? What should they be looking for? In the same way that your business will amplify any anything that you're great at in or anything that you're personally struggling to deal with, like in the same way that it, that with that conversation that we had, that yeah. you know the things that you need to get banged around the head with, your business will give you. Yeah. As an industry, we need to really get in touch with that because what technology then does on top of that is that it scales it. 
and and amplifies it even even more. So technology has the ability to really amplify what we are amazing at. And I hope that that is amazing relationships and great leadership and being great places to work because if it's not, then it will amplify how rubbish we are as an industry and I I really don't want that because I see so many people doing amazing things that I think it really is time for us all to, to, to use this to step up. Great advice to finish with. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Leanne. Thanks.